This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. So earlier this week, or on the weekend, I can't remember, in the last few days, it was announced that Councillor Judy Partridge, Ward 15 Councillor who represents the Flamborough area, will be running for the Provincial Liberals in next year's election in the new ward, the created ward of Flamborough-Glanbrook. And this was an interesting decision for a number of reasons we're going to get into. Uh, Councillor Partridge joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, hello, Scott. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. But I have to take issue with one thing that you've said. What's that? Well, you called runners goofy. Did I hear that? <laughs> oh, my God. Goodness, Scott. Are you a runner? Come on. I, I know you do a little running because I know the well. I know the premier is a big runner, but <laughs> I, I have run at times, and every time I do it, I think, why am I doing this? Yeah, but you know what, Scott? You were picking on Ted Michaels. You can't do that, okay? <laughs> oh, we always pick on Ted Michaels. Yeah, That's I the know, end. <laughs> I know. And you know what? Ted and I have known each other for as long Absolutely. as you and I have known each other. And yeah, I guess it's okay to pick on him. But, you know, good guy and oh, he yeah. does and, a lot for the community. And I look, I, I look at the folks doing the Around the Bay race every year <laughs> when I go and watch it. And I think I would love, and I know some people cross the finish line smiling, but so many people come up Heartbreak Hill and look like they would rather be sticking a <laughs> screwdriver in their eye socket. It. And I'm like, why are you doing this then? <laughs> anyway, I know, I know, the runners are a different breed. I get it. Yeah, but Scott, can I challenge you to yes. the next to the next round the bay race? Uh, no, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the 5K. I've done the baby around the bay, yeah, and and yeah. and and that was that's another story we'll share for another day. Yep. Um, is this something you've been thinking about doing for a long time, or was this something that came up suddenly? No, you know what? I, um, you know, from uh, a few years ago, I had planned on, I'm going to do two, maybe three terms of council because I do believe that, you know, two, three terms is, is kind of uh, good to do. Um, but eventually I did want to run for the council or for the province, and I'll tell you why. I think that if you're going to run for the province, you really need to understand what the city of Hamilton needs and, you know, what, what the, the key issues are. You learn that by being on city council. And, uh, you know, having spent almost eight years there now, I've accomplished, I think, a great deal. And it's been in total partnership with my community and with the rest of the city of Hamilton and certainly with my colleagues around the table. But at some point in time you need to move to the next level because it you know it is the legislation from the province that really dictates and has uh, the greater amount of of um, prediction on what happens in our municipality and that's where i feel i need to be at this point where i can be the most effective for for not only flamborough glanbrook but also for the broader city of hamilton Am I, I need to be on the inside where I can affect change in terms of legislation and, uh, you know, really be involved again on the inside on the key issues that are affecting our city. Am I correct in understanding that both the Liberals and the Conservatives were courting you to try and get you to go with them? That's correct. So how did you end up, well, it's nice to be wanted, first of all, I suppose, so there's that, but how did you end up choosing the Liberal Party then? Well, I, I mean, as far as being wanted, you know, I I, <laughs> uh, I, I feel very blessed at this point, but I, you know, I, I, it's hard work. It is all hard work that gets you where you need to be, and then you make the decision to go to that next level. I call myself a blue liberal. I am fiscally responsible. I am completely focused on the bottom line, and anybody who works with me on council or who has watched on council knows 
that um, I'm, I'm very much, you know, the devils are always in the details, and I think that's where you need to focus. And there's a number of us on council that do that, and we do it well, and that is just critically important. On the flip side of that, though, I also care very deeply about my community, uh, not only about my community of, of Flamborough, which, you know, I've been blessed to serve, but also the broader city of Hamilton. You, when you call yourself a blue liberal, it's an interesting description because we've heard red Tories before. I, I don't know that I've heard the blue liberal phrase before, but it would make sense. You can be on one side or the other with that one. But I'd like to be the one that coins that. Uh, well, now, you know what? I think you may have. Before, let's say that, that, that that's been uh, my term that I will coin. I think you may have because, again, someone else may have, but I've not heard that one before. Yeah. But what makes I this... I always in- like to be on the forefront. Yeah. <laughs> what makes this interesting to me, though, is that I had always assumed based on a number of things that were going on, that you were a conservative. And one of those things was that, if I recall correctly, you had endorsed David Sweet, MP, for that area uh, in the last election. Have you always been, when you, call, when you say you're a blue liberal, have you always been a liberal, or has it sort of back and forth a little bit, of depending on who's running? Well, that's an interesting question, because, you know, one of the things that uh, I've done a little soul-searching in the past uh, particularly in the past five years. And, and by the way, I supported David because I believe that, you know, David is a good person and David has done a good job in the past. And I had absolutely no problem supporting him um, and his family. And, and I will recognize at this time he's going through a very difficult Indeed. period right now with his family. Um, but, you know, I've, I've uh, have been in a conservative in the past, and, and I've watched that party... And, and in a way, it kind of breaks my heart because over the past, I don't know how many elections now, they seem to just about get to the point and then they implode within, you know, a couple of months of the election and things happen. And I got to tell you, at this point, as, as a female, as uh, someone who has worked incredibly hard to be a leader in the community, I don't see myself reflected in that party. One of the things that is, you know as well as I do, this is going to come up at your very first election stop, if you haven't had one already, and it's going to come up all the way through, I'm sure, at every I've place you go. several, actually, yes. Um, there are some issues mm-hmm. that you have fought for on council that seem to be incon- incongruous with the position that the Liberal government will take. The most obvious one would be you have been a vocal and ardent critic especially right near the end of the voting in March when you wrote in the Flamborough newspaper about the LRT, you have been a critic, a strong critic of the LRT, and now you are, if you win, you will be serving the government or the party that has been fighting to bring the LRT. And how do you balance those two things off? How do you now, after being so vocally critical of the LRT, support it wholeheartedly? Well, I'm not supporting it, and I have not changed my position, but what better position to be in to be uh, able to watch from the inside what is happening on the LRT file than to be, um, you know, at the, pro- at the provincial level and at Queen's Park. And, and you know what, Scott? Just because uh, the Liberals have a very big tent, and, and, and you know, i got to say that when uh, and i'm going to come back to your uh, to your your previous question when i look at so where would the best fit be for my values and i got to tell you that i feel that there is you know certainly a place for me 
to be able to be against certain policies and be in support of certain policies and still fit within that party. And I think that is critically important. Um, I did not support LRT. I don't support LRT. But it's up to council. It is whatever council decides to do. Right, and and I was going to say because the at the end and and you you have been and I want to you know credit where credit is due. You've talked about being a fiscal conservative. You have been a fiscal conservative on council, absolutely. And one of the lines, the the closing line you wrote in that Flamborough newspaper piece about the LRT was, "I'm committed to protecting the taxpayers of Hamilton from a cost burden mm-hmm. that we will never recover from." And I do wonder when it, again. Let's let's jump ahead. Let's say you win. Let's say the Liberal government, the, the Kathleen Wynne government, wins again. So you are in office. Will you then be taking up with Kathleen Wynne the issue about whether this needs to be revisited? Or again, are you saying, no, as long as the city of Hamilton has said they want this, that's okay? So that, yeah, and, and, and absolutely, my, you know, my authority, my position, if, you know, when I get elected to the provincial government, is not to try and influence this vote one way or the other. It's up to council. If council and council has voted to go with LRT. But at the same time, I am not going to sit back and say, oh, well, council decided that. It's out of my hands. Absolutely not. It is, it is incumbent on me as a representative of Flamborough-Glanbrook and, and as a steward of the city of Hamilton to be able to uh, shepherd, if you will, to, uh, to be involved in the negotiations and to keep an eye on that LRT file couple other ones. I, I have limited yep. time, and I want to get to a couple other things that, again, I know you are going to get asked these questions when you go to different meetings and different election things, so let's do yep. it right off the and bat I here. I have no problem with any questions that anybody throws at me. You have uh, very, again, very vocally and very proudly spoken about how you have represented the rural uh, constituents that Flamborough has a lot of more rural than downtown Hamilton, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of farmers. Go online and just look at it. There's endless stories right now of farmers, of agriculture workers who are saying that the minimum wage increase, the going up to 14 and then $15, is going to be crushing to them so they will not be able to make a go of it. How, as someone who supports the farming community and supports agriculture, can you get around the fact that the people you are representing, if you're working for the Liberal government, say your policy would be harming us? So first of all, I want to stress very strongly, farmers feed families, farmers feed cities. That is critically important for everybody to remember. Our agricultural community in the city of Hamilton, all the agribusiness, it represents $1.3 billion, that's B with a billion dollars, to our economy. It is hugely important. And I do support the minimum wage, but I got to tell you, I think we need to listen and really hear clearly what small businesses and what the farming community has to say about what would be the best way to implement that. So you are, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You are and not. I won't let you. You are worry. not wedded necessarily, then, or, or you won't go in and not say anything. If this if, again, if the position comes and you have a chance to go in, and if there are concerns from farmers and agriculture workers, you would actually take that up with the government, saying we may want to revisit this or talk about maybe a new implementation plan. 
So, Scott, when have you ever known me to not speak out about anything? <laughs> fair enough. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, fair enough. But, but it would be very no, difficult, you know I would no, think. And I want to remind everybody that the Liberal government right now, they're doing a number of public meetings to do exactly that, to hear from the public, to hear from businesses, whether you're a large business or a small business, they want to hear from the business community and from people in general about what the impact is going to be in their plan to have the minimum wage raised to the $15 per hour by 2018-2019. And, and it's critically important that those meetings are taking place right now. So, you know, they're not doing this in absence of any... Um, uh, you know, any public consultation. And I got to tell you, last week or the week before, I attended one of the public consultation meetings at the Sheridan Hotel in Hamilton, and it, it, was, it was hugely, hugely attended. And, you know, we heard from just about every walk of life on what the benefits, the pros and the cons would be. But more importantly, we heard from businesses, farmers, small businesses, agribusinesses, what are some of the things that might help roll this out? Do we need to have other programs involved or find ways to help farmers and to help small businesses and businesses in general be able to implement this minimum wage? Because minimum wage, you know, in all the studies that are done, um, there, there's not any that I can think of or that I've heard of that actually links the increase in minimum wage to job loss or job impacts. In most cases, they forget to include, well, that increase in, in, in uh, minimum wage, those dollars that are coming to the people who are, who are working, is actually going to be spent in the community. And, you know, maybe it means you're not going to have as much of a job turnover as you had when you were paying a lower amount. Because it's a very, you know, that, that um, part-time uh, uh, working group, it's very fluid. And it costs a fortune. I know, I've been a small business owner. It costs a fortune if you have to continually replace your employees and continually retrain them. I know you have somewhere to go, and I, I, and I want to keep you forever. But I got one more for you, because, and this may be the biggest one, because there has been no issue that has plagued the Liberals more and that has got the hackles of the rural community up higher than the Kathleen Wynne and previously the Dalton McGinty handling of the hydro file. This is something that this has been a huge problem mm -hmm. with prices and spiking hydro rates and farmers and everyone is screaming about this. I, I, again, I, I'm sure, and I haven't got it in front of me, I'm sure at some time you have actually criticized what's going on to protect the people in your constituency. How do you, what do you do in this case? How do you now, as a Liberal, support or defend what's going on with the hydro rates? So first of all, within the uh, city of Hamilton and, and the urban communities, the the um, Horizon Hydro is is the you know that's where we get our power from, and uh, it has recently amalgamated with Brampton and Mississauga, and Barrie, and St. Catharines, and uh, formed a new company called Electra, and Electra has a lower hydro rate, and you know they service our community extremely well. The Liberal government has also brought in the plan to reduce 
the cost by 25%. Now, to our local community, and, and when I say that, I mean the urban area, it actually means a savings of 28%. You know, that, that just started, I believe it was July 1st. So hydro bills that are coming in now, you're going to start to see the effects of that. But more importantly, this new company, um, Horizon, which is now called Eletra, one of the things that, that I've been working on with my colleagues around uh, City Council is to look at expanding. If you look at the city of Hamilton, which is serviced in the, in the outlying areas such as Flamborough and such as Glanbrook and, uh, and the other uh, rural areas, is served by Hydro One. Hydro One we, you know, we've been looking at, so how do we, as Electra now, how do we bring all of the Hydro One within the boundaries of the city of Hamilton? How do we bring that into Electra, take over that ownership, have that merger happen so that we can provide more efficient service in Hydro to our residents? That's what we've been working on for about six years now. And we're going to make that happen, and that is going to make a difference. Now, as far as the sale of Hydro One outside of our area, I think the issue is more in the uh, northern part of Ontario. But at the end of the day, the billions of dollars that have been spent have been to improve the hydro system that we have. When was the last time we had a brownout? Three years ago, we had brownouts all the time. We'd be sitting watching TV up here in Carlisle, and, you know, all of a sudden everything would go down, and then it would come back up again. And maybe the power would go out for three hours. We haven't had that happen for the longest time, certainly within the last two years. And I think that's because of the investment that the uh, Liberal government has made to improve and fix all of our uh, electrical issues within Hydro One. It's a hugely expensive item. And there's no question that, you know, the taxpayers are going to have to pay for that. But how do we leverage that against, um, you know, making it more affordable? Because especially for our businesses, and, and again, that's where I think we have to be really conscious of what is the impact on the bottom line of our businesses for our farmers. The farmers are out in the rural area. They're serviced by Hydro One. There is no question of that. We need to do a better job of making... Um, rebate options more available to them. And there are rebate programs right now that many in our rural area that are in businesses can tap into. We need to protect that. There's a lot more stuff that I wish we could talk about, and we will down the road, but I promised I would get you out of here by 7.30 because you have another function to go to, and it is 7.30 on the nose right now, so Councillor Judy Partridge, uh, soon to be running in Flamborough, Glanbrook. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I am running, and it's not soon to be. I am absolutely off and running, and Scott, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Judy Partridge, again, uh, running in Flamborough-Glanbrook for the Liberals. You heard her explanations. You heard the answers to the questions. I, I do think that when this campaign gets up and running for real i mean as far as i mean it's running for real i know that but when it really gets going when people begin to get engaged and go to all candidates meetings and there's debates i i do think that councillor partridge is going to face a lot of questions about hydro 
a lot of questions about LRT. She explained herself. I, I wanted to give her the opportunity to do that. But I think that those are things when you run for the Liberals, which have been behind these ideas, and you have been critical of those things in the past, I think that's going to be an interesting situation for her. Be, uh, and I look forward to it. She obviously, she obviously has answers. She obviously has a position. She's obviously thought through this. Be interesting to see under fire at an all-candidates meeting how this plays out because it is a... I would have expected, i got to be honest, when I, if I had heard that Judy Partridge was going to be running for a political party in either the provincial or the federal, my guess prior to this would have been she would run for the Conservatives. So I was probably like some of you, I was very surprised that it was the Liberals, but we will see how all this plays out. we got some time. We're going to hear a lot about this before we have an election. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, there was a time, as we get into a topic I've wanted to talk about for days now, finally I'm able to. There was a time when Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, uh, Rex Reed, trying to think who else, Leonard Maltin, other top movie critics were, if not all powerful, they certainly wielded a mighty scepter of power because their thumbs up could make a hit and their thumbs down could crush box office. They were great at what they did. They were very professional and they were respected. It all tied in together. Well, today things are a little bit different. Not that there's not good critics out there, but it seems as though things are changing in a world of social media and bloggers Critics are a different animal. Well, my next guest, who actually happens to be a very, very good one, wrote about this the other day. Joel Rubinoff is one of the best pop culture writers you are going to find anywhere. And as it turns out, he works just up the road in Waterloo at the Waterloo Record, which means that a lot of his stuff ends at the spec.com and in the Hamilton Spectator to readers around here to our benefit. Uh, He joins me now. Joel, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm excellent, and I've wanted to have you on forever. You are such a busy guy, and so (laughs) I'm finally able to find a night to do this. But I want to read you something from your own words. You wrote this the other day. Critics, you read it here, are finished. Like the Model T Ford and dial-up internet, they were all powerful one moment, antiquated relics the next, especially movie critics, lumbering mastodons in an age where peer reviews on social media determine success and failure, and superhero franchises make critical insight not only superfluous, but downright laughable. And why does Joel Rubinoff say that the critics are dying off like the dinosaurs? If this summer's reviews are any indication, and I believe they are, these elitist tastemakers have finally jumped the shark, wildly overpraising competent but unspectacular studio blockbusters they would have scoffed at were their livelihoods not in danger. Joel, you are, it seems anyway, suggesting that many critics have taken to the point where they are concerned enough about their jobs that they are writing things to be popular rather than being honest about what they're seeing. Is that a a fair assessment? You know, it's interesting. I can't prove it, in a, you know, if I was on the witness stand in court. <laughs> but I, I see general trends unfolding, and I've been in this business long enough to, to see the arc of the, uh, uh, of the, the curve of the, uh, the way things are going. And um, it does appear over the last 15 years as, as blockbusters have become more and more synonymous with superheroes and kid, fil- and kid films. Those are the two um, models of filmmaking that get 
big funding from the studios. Everything else is considered an art film or an Oscar contender, and they have tiny budgets, and they usually um, go more or less unnoticed in terms of box office returns. So what I what I I mean this is just a theory, but what what I've noticed is that critics seem to be heaping wildly lavish praise on on films that I can't imagine getting this kind of response like a couple of decades ago before social media kind of cut all critics off at the knees basically for lack of a better a better way to put it and and kind of you know equalized the playing field and it became more democratic and everybody. Um, has an opinion, and everybody's opinion is equally valid. And the tomato meter is the the number one harbinger of what is good and bad at the at the at the at the movie theater. So I, I do I do see a trend where things like I, I cited in my in my piece, Wonder Woman, Spider Man, Homecoming, War for the Planet of the Apes, are being compared to what I would consider, um, you know, like classic films like Apocalypse Now, and and uh, and Wonder Woman got a score of um, ninety. Two on Rotten Tomatoes. I liked Wonder Woman. I thought it was a good movie, but it's not The Godfather, <laughs> at least from my perspective. Spider-Man: Homecoming um, is the third reboot, or the, I should say, the second reboot, but the third new Spider-Man since 2002 when Tobey Maguire took the role. I mean, I've never seen anything. Be, it just seems like at this point in in the franchise, it's you know. I mean, I think it was an okay film, but um, you know, the the reviews indicate that it's you know. A brilliant masterpiece, and I just can't take it seriously. It would be like for me, it would be like taking Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, you know, <laughs> saying, "Well, this is just like Apocalypse Now." War for the Planet of the Apes again. It was consider- it was kind of reviewed interestingly to me, at least as an art film. It got the highest rating of any um, Planet of the Apes film, including the 1968 original, which I cannot believe because I love that movie and I think it's un- undeniably a classic. And the new one, it, it does, you know, it has certain elements to it that I agree lend it to being taken seriously. But, I mean, basically what I found is that it, it basically is lifting scenes from films like Apocalypse Now and putting them in a digital, you know, apes context. So, you know, if I'd never seen any of the other classic films it's, it's cribbing from, I might I might buy into it more than I do. But to me, it, it, it just seems kind of silly to be comparing War for the Planet of the Apes to Apocalypse Now, which some critics have actually done. And then the last one I mentioned is Dunkirk, which I actually think is a great movie. But again, there's a sense that this is a revolutionary film that we've never seen before. And I'm thinking, well, you know, there was Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, and Platoon. And some critics, um, you know, some people, I shouldn't say critics, have have actually compared it to a Call of Duty video game, <laughs> which which I don't I don't agree with. I think it is a great film, but is it an original film? Eh, you know, it's 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 well it's it's brilliantly done. I would never say anything bad about Dunkirk, but it's I you know I mean we can argue about whether it's an original film or not, but I, I you know I I think I think some of the praise that's been lavished on it is just over the top, which is the trend that I've been kind of noticing in general lately. Okay, so let's for those who don't know, when you said the tomato meter, I just want to go back for one second, just in case there's somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about. Rotten Tomatoes is a website that's popped up, what, about 10 years ago, probably something like that, something give or take. Like that. I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly okay. sure. But in, in a decade or so, and what it does, it, it gathers all the critics' reviews and gives it a score based on either a positive or a negative review, and so the higher the grade... That's the more critics have actually said, not necessarily the critics haven't said, hey, that's a 98, but 98% of critics have given this 
a positive review. The interesting part about this, you talk about some of these movies, about Wonder Woman getting a 92. Uh, I looked this up today. Wizard of Oz, which I think most people think is one of the all-time classic greatest movies ever, got a 99. Almost every critic loves Wizard of Oz. Citizen Kane got a 100. Right. Zootopia gets a 98. (laughs) And Mad Max Fury got 97. And my favorite one, Shaun the Sheep movie got a 99. So Shaun (laughs) the Sheep is the same as Wizard of Oz as far as modern reviewing. So what I don't understand, Joel, is why? Why are critics who once upon a time, the name critic itself suggests critical analysis. Why are critics becoming, essentially making themselves so irrelevant by saying everything is fantastic? Well, you know, just to speak about from Rotten Tomatoes, my, my, my sense of Rotten Tomatoes, because I've done a little bit of research on it, because a lot of the critics they consider critics are perhaps not what you and I would consider critics, i.e. for a major you know, publication or a major website. Um, a lot of them may be like bloggers or you know, um, just people that meet the criteria as defined by Rotten Tomatoes, but I, I not, maybe they have a podcast. I think it gets diluted. I think there's a lot of people that are are promoting films in there that would not pass muster in the in the old school um, definition of the word film critic. So I think that skews it for one thing. And I think in general, I just think there's a lack of context. I think that after watching 15 years of of um, superhero films and um, and and kid flicks, which are all you know, they're these are the new these are the new this is it. Like, there's nothing else other than, you know, small budget art films. I think there, there, you know, a lot of people probably haven't seen Apocalypse Now. They probably haven't seen The Godfather. Maybe there's no, pers- you know, there's no... Nothing to compare it to. I can't imagine how, I, I honestly don't, I don't understand how these films are getting 99 and 98%. It doesn't, it, it kind of, if everything is great, you know, then, then nothing is great. I mean, that's how I would tend to look at it. What, okay, you have reviewed movies, lots of movies, lots of plays, lots of concerts, lots of musicians. I mean, this is what you have done over your career. You've done this at the times. When you write something critical, when you actually act as a critic and are a harsh critic, harsh but fair, what kind of response do you get from A, from people who just read this, and B, from people who might be diehard fans of either the artist or the franchise or whatever else? What kind of response do you get? Well, well, listen, you can't please everybody, and whether you're a film critic or a TV critic or a music critic, I've been all three. I mean, you, you, just, you, you try to judge the work on its own merits. Um, I think critics do have a role then and now, and I think Siskel and Ebert, who you referred to earlier, were very big on this, in highlighting and identifying smaller films that would otherwise fall under the radar and not get the attention they deserve. So I think when it comes to Oscar fare and things like that, I think that critics actually still, even to this day, serve a valuable function when they can review stuff like that, that other people, that doesn't have the backing of a major studio and, and doesn't have millions of dollars in, in, in um, promotional budgets. I think the idea of critics reviewing a film like The Nut Job 2 uh, is ridiculous because these are, this is a movie designed for kids eight and under, and, you know, it's got, like, I think 13%. There's, a, there's the opposite example right there on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's, like, 13%. And, I mean, I took my two kids, they're seven and nine, to it on the weekend because it just so happens the filmmakers are from Kitchener. And uh, they loved it. They thought it was a great movie. They would have given it 99%. So, you know, I think that critics serve – I think they're – most critics would probably consider themselves – 
you know, they're looking. They're on the constant hunt for Oscar bait. You know, they're 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 looking for quality. They have a certain background in film, the legitimate ones. And I think when you send them to things like Boss Baby and Nutjob too, you're going to get you know a lot of ticked off, you know, sarcastic reviews that that don't really serve any purpose because the people that go to see those films are kids and kids don't re- read reviews and you know it just becomes a little silly. I would say the same thing is probably true of superhero films that don't really require critical accolades to pack pack you know pack crowds into the theater and but but I and I find it a little bit um demeaning for critics to appear to be who appear to be sucking up <laughs> because that's what it looks like to me when they start awarding um, Planet of the Apes and Wonder Woman, like ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent. I mean, they're not bad films, but come on, they're not they're not classics in the sense of, that we understand the meaning of the word. But the reason I asked you, and this is why I asked you about what kind of response do you get when you write something that might be critical, is it seems as though there's a lot of people today who are working under the guise of critic, whether it's on a blog or in a paper oh, or on whatever, yeah. Yeah. and they would rather have either clicks or they would rather not have someone go nuts at them for saying you're being mean or you're being unfair <laughs> or you're out of touch. They would rather be popular then they would then be respected. Right, and that's kind of the trend I'm noticing. I mean, that that's kind of, I think, explains a little bit about why these scores are are so crazy, you know, ridiculously high for films that probably are, you know, B-plus movies at best, and they're getting, like, A-plus-plus ratings. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you get used to a certain level of... Um, yeah, I, I'm not strictly speaking reviewing films. I think the the job has become a bit like being a VCR technician or a stonemason. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's it, it's not a high in this day and age. Honestly, like it's not the major major publications have what we understand to be film critics. If you're counting things like bloggers and people are sitting in their parents' basements, that's a whole different level of you know. I'm not sure what to make of those people. I think they contribute to the conversation, which is always good. But I'm not sure. You know, it kind of goes into the tomato meter, but I'm not sure that you really get an accurate sense of of um, of what you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I don't. Um, I, you know, as a critic, I think you're looking for things like La La Land and Moonlight. I don't think you want to go be singing kid films and superhero flicks. And and the, and I think there's a sense among critics because a lot of I, I have a lot of colleagues in the business, and they're they're a lot of them are out of a job now because the position has been you know rendered redundant over the last five or ten years so i think there's probably a little bit of panic there and you know maybe if we become a little bit more populist that will save our skin for another two years i'm not sure I, this is just my my sense of the of the thing I, I i'm not sure that critics have a other than for as i said art films and oscar bait um really are that relevant <laughs> i mean no but and the word and the other part about this the conundrum is that when you say that that maybe they're trying to keep their jobs by being more populist uh, seems to me that if, as you say, if everything's great, then nothing is. If you pablum everything you do just to make people like what you write as opposed to being honest and being professional and everything else, to me, that's exa- that's that's accelerating your demise. That's making, why do I then care oh, of course. why yeah, you, yeah. Uh, as a professional critic, why do I want to bother with you when I could just go to 400 websites and read the same thing? Yeah, and honestly, I think the the profession, in some respects, is just in free fall. Unless you're working for a major, major um, publication, then your name is out there. And how many people? I can think of Peter Travers at Rolling Stone, and you know, there's a couple of people at the New York Times. But if you're talking about rec- Siskel and Ebert type recognition, I think the list is very small in this day and age in terms of critics that people would actually know the name of. So I don't. I I think critics are a becoming more anonymous, and I think 
that goes into the whole tomato meter phenomenon where people want to know, is it fresh or is it rotten? And that seems to be what they really need to know. And critics, you know, maybe they're in a panic or maybe they're not. I don't know. But it does, it does seem like the, the standards for judging things are perhaps being skewed a little bit um, in the modern era. The irony of this to me is that it seems as though as more and more critics go away and as more and more become, I'll use the word again, pablum, the door would be open for people who would be true critics. I mean, I look on TV right now, and two of the biggest, highest-paid stars on TV, Simon Cowell, who has made a career of being the guy who says whatever he wants to very bluntly, and everyone boos him, but everyone likes him because he says what they're thinking, and Gordon Ramsay, who is the, the chef, who does the same thing. And I'm thinking, surely if those guys and people like them can make a career by being brutally honest to the point of being almost obnoxious, there is a spot somewhere for people to say what people are really thinking and not worry about whether or not it is popular or whatever else. It seems the door would be open for a few more people like that. I would agree with that, but I think in this day and age, again, it's silos. You're talking about um, everybody's got their own little mm. reality, and it's not like you can have Walter Cronkite preaching to the masses like 30, 30 or 40, or Johnny Carson you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it's, um, it's hard to get to that level. Simon Cowell, you know, he had the biggest, he, for 10 years, he was on the biggest mainstream TV show on the planet. So yes, he does have that name recognition. Um, Gordon Ramsay, you know, same thing in a different context. I'm not sure I've, I can think of a film critic, to be honest, that falls into that category. Not today, not today, but once not upon today. a time. You'd think there, but but I agree with you because I think there is a need for that because I think there's too much content out there. People cannot wait, possibly wait through 75 reviews on on a, on a movie or or whatever it is, and um, there needs to be some curation, uh, uh, like trustworthy, um, you know, critics, I guess, or or, or some way of um, you know getting through, you know, helping people to figure out what movie to see that doesn't involve a number on a tomato meter um but it it seems to have you know and to be fair Siskel and Lieber kind of started that whole trend with their thumbs up thumbs down thing anyways even though that wasn't what they were all about that that is what actually caught on and and propelled film criticism in the, in the following generations um along with social media so you know <laughs> well and here's the thing we just have a minute or so left but here, here's the other thing about this it strikes me and you're in it all the time you are working in pop culture in the entertainment world you're doing a lot of the stuff you have it seems to me that so much of the entertainment industry has essentially become almost a boot looking enterprise where if you go and you interview a star on the red carpet heaven forbid you ever ask a hard question because you'll be banned forever or if you do one of those one-on-ones that we see entertainment tonight or whatever doing with the stars if you got that chance for three minutes with Brad Pitt or whoever else and you asked a hard question of one of these guys about some political position they took or something else you would never have access again so better to just ask the softballs and sell the thing that they're trying to sell rather than being a real journalist well, that's, those are very astute comments, and I totally agree. I was a TV critic for about 10 years, and I went every summer. They sent me to Los Angeles for the annual TV critics uh, conference, uh, press conference, press tour, where we got to interview all the stars of all the shows for the upcoming season. And uh, there was an immense pressure uh, to suck up. Yes, definitely in a group setting, for sure. Um, you don't want to be singled out as a, as a bad apple, a troublemaker. But what happens um, if you did? What if, what if someone did? <laughs> there were a few old curmudgeon type people that had been going for 40 years that had been reared in a different era that did do that 
And you know what? They were respected. Um, I think they had the stature uh, at that point to be able to do that. I think it's different. I think Hollywood, TV is a little different than, than Hollywood as well because it's not, it doesn't have the same cachet. Um, I, I, I've been in situations at round tables, I should say like interviews with other journalists at tables where a Hollywood star comes to promote their film. And if uh, you're right, if you if you and I and I know because I I did that in at, at one point I did uh, <laughs> Jennifer Connelly in 1990 promoting a film called The Rocketeer, maybe it was 1991, and um, I I did um, I tried to get away. A lot of the questions are very inane. They're very um, self-serving. They're very um, pointless um, and trivia-based because they don't want to upset the, the, the famous Hollywood star. And I actually rocked the boat a little bit, and, and I, I was banned from any more press conferences. I mean, it was very, very clear-cut. Touchstone Pictures, which was at that time owned by Disney, said, you know, this guys <laughs> he's not coming back. So, you know, um, you're up and you're down. If you, the best thing you can hope for is if you're at a newspaper, is you have supportive editors that will stick by you, which I did. And... Um, you know, but yeah, it's a it's a corporate machine, and um, they will roll over you if you don't play ball. Joel Rubinoff of the Waterloo <laughs> Record, uh, great stuff. Glad we could finally get you on. You can read his stuff online at the Waterloo Record, or as I said, often it is posted also at thespec.com. When you're reading something about pop culture, look at the name. It's probably Joel. Uh, he is one of the great writers on this topic uh, stuff around. Joel, thanks so much for doing this tonight. Appreciate oh, it. Thanks so much, Scott. Always a pleasure. Uh, that is, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing to me. It really is, because as I said right off the top, at one time, these guys wielded so much power, and maybe too much power, to be honest. I don't know. Maybe too much power. And at one time, there were people who said, I don't, what do I care what a reviewer thinks? I'm just going to go, and if I like the movie, I like the movie. Why do I care what a reviewer thinks of this movie? And I'll be honest, there's no doubt that some of the reviewers, including some of the famous ones, were a little snooty, that everything stunk, everything was lousy, maybe. But there is something to be said for people who actually can do this job really well and can offer guidance, especially when you now have TV and Netflix and movies and all these different things to spend your time. And frankly, when going to a movie is going to cost you 20 bucks plus popcorn, plus pop, maybe plus parking, depends where you go. You're suddenly talking, if two of you go, it's a 50 or 60 or $70 night. It, you know, it's not a bad thing to know if the movie is absolute garbage and to have someone that you respect say whether or not it's worth your time or not. But it certainly sounds as though the the day of the movie reviewer, the honest, professional, critical analysis movie reviewer is going away. And what you get is complete amateurs who are whoever. You don't know who they are, so you don't know whether to believe them. You don't know whether they have any context or abilities to judge a movie or not, or a TV show, whatever else. Or you do it on your own, which, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's okay too. But when, as I said, when Sean the Sheep movie gets the same grading as The Wizard of Oz, I'm thinking that some of the reviewers may want to reconsider what they're doing for a living. Just saying. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. A new study is out. 
And it comes from the University of Bonn, which is over in Switzerland. It's a European study, which makes sense because, of course, when you think of wine, oftentimes you think of Europe. Everybody over there, at least the soup, the stereotype is everyone over there drinks wine. Not always a stereotype. But this is a particularly interesting study, and I tell you why. Because what they found, and they did this by, well, to explain it, they had people in a, an MRI machine or whatever, and they would have this, they'd be lying down and their brains would be being scanned, I guess, somehow, and they would tell the people the value of the taste of wine they were about to get. So this is a $3 bottle of wine, and then they would give them a taste of it. Then they would give them a $30 bottle of wine, then a $100 bottle of wine to taste, and all over the place. And what they found is that the wines that were told to the subjects that were much more, not even much more, that were more expensive, the more expensive the bottle of wine, the more active those parts of the brain fired, suggesting it was more enjoyable. Doesn't necessarily mean that that, now, could it mean that some of the wine that was more expensive just tasted better? Well, sure, it could mean that. But what they did a couple times in this thing, or what they did more than a few times, I guess, is they would give a sample that was the same sample, telling them one time that it was really inexpensive, one time that it was a very expensive bottle of wine, and the same thing happened. Not the same thing. What I'm saying is what happened, happened. That when they told them that this inexpensive wine was worth a lot of money, those parts of the brain that reflect taste and pleasure and all those other things flared much higher. When they told them that same type of wine was cheaper, it didn't have any effect or very little effect. And as I was reading this, I thought, you know, I believe that. I 1,000% believe that study. I have no doubt in that study because I have been that guy. I was going to say that sucker, and sometimes that's the case. I've been that guy who has gone in to get a bottle of wine because we've got people coming for dinner or something else, and I think, well, I can't serve somebody who's coming a $10 bottle of wine. It's not going to be very good. i got to get a $25 bottle of wine. But I don't know anything about wine. I, I, I mean, I am not a wine connoisseur. I am not a sommelier. I could not... If you put 10 glasses of 10 tastes of wine in front of me and you didn't tell me which was the most expensive and which was the least expensive, I guarantee you there is no chance that I would be able to place those in order of least to most expensive or considered best to worst or worst to best. My understanding of wine and frankly of other things that I buy is based on what the market tells me the product is worth. If I go into a store and it says that this is a $25 bottle of wine, probably when I come home, I'm going to go, wow, this was an expensive bottle of wine. This tastes good. And if I get a, someone brings over a box, I mean, heaven forbid someone shows up at your house with a box of wine. Imagine like it's one thing to bring a bottle of wine to someone as a gift, as a housewarming gift or a gift that you're bringing because they've had you over. 
Has anyone ever walked in with a box of wine under their arm, a $4 bottle of wine, or box of wine, and said, here, here's your present? Or you know, a Tetra pack. <laughs> because you just don't do that. Because why? Because it would be cheap and it would taste like horrible. But I, but this suggests, mm, no, really not the case. Really not the case. There, Of course there's going to be some wine that is better. There are wines that are going to suit your palate more. There are wines you're going to enjoy more. The issue is it doesn't necessarily have to do with the price of the bottle. But have you, and I want to ask you when you're out there, and it doesn't have to be wine. It does not have to be wine. If you go to a store, you go to a restaurant, let's say, do you think that because you buy a $35 entree at store, at restaurant X, that it absolutely must be better than the $15 entree at a different restaurant? You, your taste buds probably believe, oh, this must be more gourmet. This must be better ingredients. This must be better. If that's the case, you know what? I'm just going to, if I own a restaurant, I'm just going to make it way more expensive because then everyone's going to think it tastes way better. But do you, have you ever fallen for this? Is this something that you deal with? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Have you been the victim of the placebo effect that you see something, someone says this is more expensive, therefore you believe it must be better? At least I know you're a wine drinker of sorts. I don't think you're a wine guzzler. I don't see any wine in front of you right now. You don't have a bottle with a straw during the show. It would make it more interesting, <laughs> definitely. Well, uh, thank you. No, yes. no, I just mean, <laughs> I mean the show itself would not be going so smoothly. It would definitely be. It would in- be, uh, buttons would be pressed that should not be pressed. Yeah, it would be like me trying to do the uh, TV theme song, Name That Tune, when I hang up on people I'm trying to put on hold. That would be, I have never drank wine yeah. during that show, but that's what would happen. No. But, but what about you? Have you ever walked into the a store, whether it's a wine store, whether it's somewhere else, and the price of it makes you believe it must be better because it's higher priced? Honestly, no, but I think it's because I'm a millennial <laughs> and we kind of don't really have- You're going the other way? Yeah, well, we, you know, price is just, it's insignificant because if you know it's wine, you just get, you're going to get whatever. But see, here's where I'm going to take issue with what you just said, especially about the millennials. Where are the, where do millennials, from my experience, where is the one kind of food or one kind of place where they will spend a lot of money on something? Apparently restaurants? Coffee. Oh, okay. All right. Coffee shops are the sort of the nerd I- elite millennial thing. And people will spend five or six dollars on just a cup of coffee if it's of a certain bean that's pressed a certain way, whatever. You know what? I bet you, I would bet money that if I set up a coffee shop and said, these are beans handpicked by the Incas of Machu Picchu in the hills of Peru, carried down on llama back, steamed in the Amazonian rainforest for 42 days, brought over here and sucked to, and had the husks sucked off by whatever, and then on and on and on and pressed, and we can charge $7. And what I really did was put in some beans that I bought at the grocery store in a bag. Most people would never know the difference, but they would happily pay their $7 because of the story behind it, because it must taste better. Absolutely. That's true. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm a broken millennial because I prefer, you know, <laughs> McDonald's coffee, but... But, perfect. but if I, look, again, I use the same example. If I took a cup of McDonald's coffee, which I really like, if I took a cup of McDonald's coffee and I 
snuck it into a box of McDonald's coffee and snuck it into one of the high-end coffee cafes, whatever you want to call it, and when nobody was looking, poured it into one of those fancy coffee presses and laid a few beans around to make it look like I was getting them from a really fancy place, and I served you that, I'm betting money that very few people would actually be able to tell the difference. They would go, wow, this is delicious. I'm glad I got the beans that were found under the ice in a glacier in Antarctica that had been lost by a ex- excavation or a, a, you know, an excursion a hundred years ago. They would think that was fantastic and it would be just the McDonald's coffee. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's kind of funny. I've been on wine or I've been on wine tastings and, you know, tried the expensive one versus their cheapest one. I honestly always go with the cheapest one. I think it's the most delicious. And you know what? There are experts. We've had a couple people. We've talked about wine a few times in the show. And one of them, I recall, pointed out that as your tastes become more sophisticated, that would change. That yes, for, for people who are not wine experts, the the more expensive wines have more complicated, more numbers of flavors in there, which makes it actually less desirable and less tasty for people who are really not experts. That People who are new to wine like simpler and cheaper wine. So they would say, yeah, it does taste better as you get to spend more and buy it. But my point is, I still agree with you. I still think that if you were to take people who were absolute wine nerds, those people, I remember watching an episode of Frasier one time where Frasier and Niles got into, they were both trying to be the head of the wine club and they had a wine tasting and it became this ridiculous taste off thing. But I'm willing to bet you that those people who belong to those wine clubs, more often than not, you could fool them. You absolutely could fool them and they will like inexpensive wine sometime and not like expensive wine sometime. You can and should absolutely fool them and then tell them afterwards and yes. watch their faces. And do it in front of all their colleagues and friends to yes. absolutely... No, I'm, I, <laughs> my point is... I find this study reassuring to me. To to someone like me, I find this very reassuring because I am the sucker at times. I am the sucker who walks into the store and decides, well, I have to get the more expensive bottle because the other stuff is going to be swill. And that's not always the case. And you know what? It's not just coffee and it's not just wine. Go to the grocery store and look at any product. And there are going to be nicer packagings on some and worse packagings, the contents could be exactly the same. I, I lo- and we'll always think that the ones in the nicer packaging is better. I love this study. I love this study. It is on scientific reports, if you want to go look it up online. Uh, it is really like heavy on the science, but it's fascinating. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.